Good morning. Our reading this morning is uh, the book of Esther, chapter 2, verses 19, right through to chapter 3, verse 15. While you're turning to the passage, I just want to remind you that the Bible is central to everything that we do here. The Bible is God's primary way of speaking to his people, and it shapes everything that we believe and everything that we do. The Bible is God's word, his gift to us, the church. Because of this, after I've finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all respond together. Thanks be to God. If you don't own a Bible and would like one, there are some on the shelf at the back, so please feel free to take it home with you. Okay, so let's hear the Lord speak. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Asuras promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asuras. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Asuras, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Asuras, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to him and the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces 
and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Azarus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Claire. Uh, so we think these really long readings in Esther with loads of weird names. Not weird at the time, but weird for us. Um, if, you, if you missed last Sunday, uh, we started the book of Esther, um, and that's where we're continuing this morning. Um, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that the story of Esther uh, takes place 500 years before Jesus in the Persian Empire, one of the biggest empires the world's ever seen. Uh, we saw all the way from, you know, uh, the Himalayas and India all the way over to North Africa and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, if, you, if you did miss last week, I would advise go back and listen just because from week to week we're just following this story as it goes along and it'll just help you make more sense of what we're of what we're studying if you, if you do keep up week to week. Um, and last week we, we started by asking the question, or we began asking the question, uh, is God really at work in the world? And if he is, how is he at work in the world? Um, and we saw that uh, even in the face of what seemed like this invincible power of the empire, of the world, um, this young Jewish woman uh, called Esther uh, became queen of this entire empire. And it kind of started to give us this hint that there might just be an invisible power behind it all. No matter how terrible and big and awesome the, the empire of the world seems, there might just be an even higher power than that. Um, and that even God uses the weak to overthrow the powerful. And as we read this story, um, we're reading it through these two lenses. Remember, I, I talked about uh, two lenses of a glasses, which is a really cheesy analogy, but um, I think it helps us to, it, to, to get a sense of what's going on here. If, if we read this book through the lens of God is at work, even when he seems absent, and then also God uses imperfect people to, to accomplish his perfect plans. Um, and so we're picking up this morning where we left off last week with a wee bit of overlap because there was one detail we didn't go into last week. Um, but before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us again because it is hard stuff about uh, genocide this morning that we have to look at. So let, let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is yours. Thank you that you use it to speak to us, your children. Thank you that this story, even though it was written uh, two and a half thousand years ago, is is, is living and active and, and speaking to us this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, let us hear what you're trying to say to us uh, through this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, recently, I'm going to start a wee stopwatch just so you know what I'm doing here. I'm not on my phone texting. Um, recently, me and Haley started watching Line of Duty, right? Anybody else watching that or has watched it? So we're late to the party, but let's all just be glad that we're here at all. Um, and we're, we're halfway through season three, so if you want to talk about it, don't talk to me about it. We just want to enjoy it. We don't want any spoilers. Um, if you don't know the premise of the show, it's about um, a, a police anti-corruption unit who investigate crimes committed by police officers. 
And it's really, really good. Uh, not only is the storyline good, but it's filmed in Belfast, so that's quite nice, being able to, like, you're like, I know that place, I've been in there. It's, that's quite good, we like that a lot. Um, but in every season that we've watched so far, um, you, you kind of get to the point where it just seems like it can't work out in any good way, where you're just, you're just thinking, how can this ever resolve in any, in any positive way? That's where we're at right now in the middle of season three. The bad guys are literally getting away with murder, um, and it seems like there's nothing anyone can do to stop them. Uh, while the, and the good guys are, are not able to get ahead at all. They're, they kind of look like idiots. Um, in fact, where we're at right now, there's one bad guy who is actually getting promoted and celebrated and, and recognized when, in fact, we know he's a terrible person doing terrible things. Now, obviously, it's a TV show, right? It's a drama, um, and it's meant to entertain us. But... I do think there's an element of truth in that that reflects the way the world is. Something that has always been the case in the world. Have you ever thought or wondered yourself, why, why do the bad guys always seem to get ahead, right? Have you ever, I'm sure you have. have you, I wonder if, you've, if maybe you've been in that situation where you're thinking, why have I been treated so unjustly here? Maybe you've done something good and not been rewarded for it while somebody else who definitely shouldn't be rewarded gets the recognition. Um, maybe you can go even further than that. Maybe you've even been punished for, for doing the right thing. And this is exactly the situation we find in the, this, this part of the story of Esther this morning. And what we're going to see this morning is that uh, in the face of injustice and even hatred, God is still working his good for his people. In the face of injustice and even hatred, God is still working his good for his people. And sometimes you say a sentence like that and you think, well, yeah, obviously. But actually, try not to think about this as like a subject to think about. Put yourself in those situations where you're thinking, why is this happening? How is this? What is going on here? And then apply what I've just said to that. Even in the face of injustice and hatred, God is still working his good for you. If you're, if we are his people. And we're going to see uh, this... Uh, played out in three ways, right? We're going to see the world is unfair, there's no such thing as chance, and we have a real enemy. Uh, so a nice uh, cheery message for like the first real summer day of the year. Um, so let's look at this first bit then. The world is unfair. And Our, our, our episode this morning starts where, um, where it's, it's been a while since Esther has been the queen of Persia. And this scene opens with Esther's guardian, remember, uh, Mordecai? who is uh, her cousin, uh, older cousin. He's her legal guardian. And, and Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Now, that sounds like a pretty weird thing to do for us because if we just went down to Buckingham Palace and, and sat at the gate, we'd probably be told to move. But this is not like a normal gate. It's not like the, certainly not like the gate at the end of your garden path. It's not like the, even the big gates down at the Ormo Park. It's not even like Buckingham Palace gates. Uh, archaeologists have put this gate at around... Uh, 40 meters by 30 meters. It's actually, the gate is actually a big, a big, big building. Um, it had a central hall um, that, that led into the royal palace. And then on either side, there was two rectangular rooms. And it was surrounded by these big, huge marble pillars. It was really, really grand and extravagant. It was meant to give you the sense that when you went in there, that you were entering the, the heart of the empire. It was meant to awe you and intimidate you. 
And the city gate was where all the law courts were and where all the city business is done. It's essentially the civil service headquarters of, of the empire. And so if you came to the gates to do business, say you had an issue that you needed resolved, uh, you would come there, um, but you had to stand. If you were doing your business, you had to stand. And it was the officials who sat at the king's gate. And so when, when verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us that Mordecai sits at the king's gate, that he's sitting at the king, king's gate, it means that Mordecai actually works here. So we know that, that Mordecai was some kind of civil servant. Don't know if he was a lawyer or maybe he was a junior minister or, or maybe he was just someone who did the filing. It doesn't seem like he has any prominence or, or any kind of position at all. And then one day, he overhears these two lads, Begtha, who sounds like, and, and sounds like a nickname from North Antrim, Begtha. That's what I saw, I think, <laughs> big fella. Big fella and Teresh, um, they're, they're plotting to kill the king. Now, I don't know exactly what this was like. We don't know. It doesn't go into great detail, but maybe he's you know, in a corridor putting stuff in the filing cabinet and hears those guys chatting in the break room. And I don't know why they're plotting to kill the king. Um, it was their job to protect the king, we're told, but for whatever reason. Maybe they're sick of all the taxes going to pay for these extravagant banquets. Or maybe they knew that the king's an egomaniac and whatever it is, they just decide, we could do a better job. Let's get rid of him. Let's get someone else in instead of him. And here we see, through what happens next, that Mordecai is a loyal servant of the empire and the king. Because he does the right thing. He does what's good for the king. It seems likely that he has been taught or at least remembers the words of Jeremiah 29, which was written to the Israelites before they went into exile. And it says, 29, Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And that's exactly what Mordecai is doing here. He's being, he's being a good Jew. He's seeking the welfare of the city where he lives. He serves the city in the civil service, and, and he is protecting the king. And so he gets the message to Esther, Esther, who he's close with, who he tells us, he, you know, she's like a daughter to him. And then Esther tells her husband, the king, and she actually tells the king that it was Mordecai who's, who's discovered this plot. And so it's investigated, like, you know, they send in anti-corruption, AC-12, you know, um, if you haven't seen it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, they send in anti-corruption and big fella and Teresh are found out, found out and they're executed, dealt with. But if we look at what happens next, it really makes us question what's going on here. Because even though he's discovered this plot and saved the king's life, Mordecai isn't rewarded. Surely he should be getting an OBE or something or an MBE. He's, he's actually saved the king's life. But all that happens is that the, the, this event is written down, it's filed away in some obscure record, locked up, and that seems to be the end of it. And we rightly say, hang on a minute, like, what, what, that's not fair. It's as if the author intends us to, 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 to feel the injustice here. We're meant to see that the loyalty to this empire from a person of God, one of God's people, goes unrewarded. Uh, one commentator, Christopher Ash, he, he uses this helpful, helpful analogy of Guy Fawkes, right? Remember Guy Fawkes? He tries to, you know, the gunpowder plot, he tries to blow up Parliament. Everybody remembers Guy Fawkes. Nobody remembers the guy who discovered the plot. I, I, I'd put good money on that no one in this room remembers who discovered the plot. And so Mordecai, likewise, goes unrewarded. 
And as we start chapter 3, we think, well, surely things have to turn around. Maybe a reward is coming. Especially because it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, and we think, yes, Mordecai's going to get his big promotion. He's being rewarded for his bravery and his, his loyalty. But we don't see Mordecai getting the promotion, do we? He's just still working away in his cubicle, pushing paper, getting his reports done. And meanwhile, this guy, Haman, is given the position of power and honor. Haman becomes the prime minister, the second most powerful most person in the whole empire. And it's, it's right to ask, what's going on? Where is the justice in this? If there is a God, how come it always seems that the, the bad guys get rewarded and the good guys are forgotten about? We live in a world that seems unfair, don't we? Mordecai was a, a faithful and loyal servant. He had a proven track record. And by contrast, Haman was a terrible appointment for this position. Like just truly awful. The first thing we learn about Haman is that he is an Agagite. Now, the Agagites um, were ancient enemies of the Israelites. Uh, Agag was the king of the Amalekites all the way back in the time of King Saul. Um, and, and they're actually the first people in the world to attack and try to destroy God's people. That's the reputation, that's their legacy. They are full of hatred towards God's people, and they want to see them done away with. And actually, ever since this, that term Agagite has been used to describe enemies of the Jews. So even uh, around the time of Jesus in the first century, um, the, the Jews referred to the Romans as Agagites. It was just a term that became synonymous with anyone who was an enemy of the Jewish people. Even in modern times, uh, there's actually been articles in the New York Times where uh, Enemies of the Jews are described with this word, Agagites. It's, it's, it's used in modern times to describe anti-Semitic people. And by describing Haman as an Agagite, the author, uh, he might be telling us that he's actually descended from Agag, but it's definitely a way of telling us that whether he's related to him or not, he, in his character, he's not a nice person. There's a Jewish author saying, you're an Agagite. This guy's an Agagite. Look out for this guy. He's dangerous. He's somebody to be afraid of. He's an enemy of God's people. And so straight away, we know that, we know that this would be like someone, imagine this happening in our world, someone who is openly racist becoming a president or a prime minister. But not only is Haman an Agagite, He's clearly only in politics for his own gain, right? He gets the king to order everyone to bow down to him. He loves the popularity. He loves the power. And as we'll see in a minute, he's really good at manipulating the king to get his own way. So why is it that Mordecai, the loyal servant, is not promoted and Haman, the self-serving, manipulative, power-grabbing racist, is? But isn't this the world we live in? Consider where this story meets our story, where this world meets our world. How often do we think that wrong people get to the top? We, we live in a world where God's people especially are overlooked and, and unrewarded. In fact, if you're a Christian, then you can expect to be overlooked and unrewarded for the good that you do in the world. For the last 2,000 years, the church has done so much good for society building schools, serving the poor, building hospitals, 
Christian aid charities in war-torn and impoverished countries. It was a Christian movement that led to the, the abolition of slavery in Britain. Not to mention the influence the church has had on uh, the, the creation of, of good moral laws like don't kill people or don't discriminate against people. These are things that, that come from Christian values. And yet, in spite of all this, the church isn't rewarded, is it? It's not recognized. In fact, as we're going to see further on here, the church is despised and hated by the world. And what about if we, if we narrow in even further? What about, what about you? Um, maybe you've experienced your own injustice. Maybe you're the, 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 the loyal, honest, hardworking employee, but it's your colleague. She's really good at manipulating the boss and, and pretend to be friends with her just so that she gets the promotion or gets in the boss's good books. These things happen all the time. And let's pause for a second. Because this, this can seem like quite a hopeless um, passage here that we just read. Claire finished with this decree to, to kill all the, kill all the, the, the Jews. So I, wanna, I want us to, as we go along, see the hope that we have in this. But there is hope in this story, no matter what injustice or discrimination or oppression or hatred you face as a Christian. Because if we fast forward from this story in Esther 500 years to, to Jerusalem, specifically a hell outside Jerusalem, what do we see? We see the world's greatest injustice of all time. The only perfect and completely innocent person who has ever lived, who should actually be rewarded and exalted and worshipped, is executed like a criminal. See, Jesus was, he perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly served other people. He lived a life of doing good for others, and yet he was treated unjustly at the hands of the empire. From the outside looking in, it looks like injustice, doesn't it? But in actual fact, it was through this greatest injustice that God achieved the work of salvation for his people. The cross stands as a reminder that God worked his most good plan through the world's worst injustice. And doesn't, shouldn't that give us hope that when we're facing injustice, that our salvation is born out of injustice. And so we can have hope when we face injustice, when, when other people, when we're not rewarded for the good that we do in Jesus' name, or, or for when other people who are clearly doing evil things are promoted cross stands as our encouragement because our salvation was born, was won out of the world's greatest injustice. And so the story moves on. And the next thing we see is that there's no such thing as chance. Uh, the king, Ahasuerus, he, he's ordered that everyone has to bow down to Haman, right? Which seems like a really weird thing for us. And it's probably not like a worship thing. It's not a religious thing. This is about just respecting Haman's position and title. So you're bowing down to the prime minister. Um, so even today, in the, if you're in the armed forces, um, in any army in the world, when, when a soldier salutes a, a higher ranking officer, they're actually saluting the rank, not the person themselves. So you can really uh, not like the person who's your you know, captain or whatever, but you still have to salute the rank. But Mordecai, 
Mordecai just can't stomach this. He just refuses to bow down to Haman. And from what we've seen already, it seems a bit out of character, doesn't it? Because Haman, remember, he's the loyal servant of the empire. He works for the good of the empire. He has saved the king's life. And so why does he refuse to bow down? Maybe there's a personal dislike there. I mean, Haman doesn't exactly come across as like the nicest guy in the empire. Or maybe Mordecai is angry and bitter about the fact that Haman got the promotion whenever he was the one who saved the king's life. But ultimately, I think it has something to do with the fact that, that he is a Jew and Haman is an Agagite. We, we know that Mordecai, even though uh, he is told Esther to, to keep her Jewishness hidden for now, he at this point has finally revealed who he is. He's revealed his identity. He's revealed that he is a Jew. And, and Mordecai seems to know the history between uh, his people and the Agagites. And he simply cannot bow down to this ancient enemy of the Jews. But the interesting thing about Haman, and it gives us an insight into his character, is that he doesn't even notice. At first, he doesn't notice that Mordecai isn't bowing down to him. He's so caught up in, in, in the adulation and the, the popularity that he doesn't even notice that there's one person who's not bowing down to him. You can imagine him like every time he gets out of his, I don't know what the equivalent of a chauffeur-driven car would have been in those days, a chauffeur-driven camel or something, and he gets out of it, and straight away everyone's down on one knee, and he just loves it. He just loves the par. And it's only when the other civil servants tell Mordecai that he finds out, and then he's furious. Of course he's furious, because he wants every single person to kneel before him. He wants par over everyone. How dare this second-class cockroach of a man from a lesser race not bow down to me? can't stand it. And isn't this interesting? It's after he learns who Mordecai's people are, he isn't just satisfied with getting rid of Mordecai. It's when he learns that Mordecai is a Jew that he wants to destroy not just Mordecai for, for being disobedient, but he wants to destroy all the Jews. He wants to wipe them out completely, every last one of them, through the whole kingdom, from India to the Mediterranean. And in verse 7, we see that he goes about choosing the time and the date that he will carry out this plan to wipe them all out. You see, he's a superstitious man. He's self-important. And he, he doesn't want to just do it any old day, the next Saturday that I'm free. He wants a, a specifically chosen date. And so he, he, he casts the poor. He casts lots. It's like throwing dice. These things were like cubes that you would roll and, and you would use that to get answers to questions. It's a kind of divin divination. And so he's going to find through doing this that the, most, that the best day to wipe out all the Jews. And the date that he lands on just so happens to be right before Passover. Now you might remember that Passover is the, the main festival in the Jewish calendar. And it's the day of celebrating how God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And, and a day of celebrating when God won a mighty victory over the enemies of God. You can imagine the smile coming across Haman's face, just fueled by hatred. He lands on this date. He's like, this is the right date. They might remember when they were rescued before, but they won't be rescued this time. I'm going to crush them. We will wipe them out. There's nobody to save them this time. And it seems totally hopeless, doesn't it? 
The dice have been cast. The fate has been sealed. Their luck has finally run out. But we know that there's more to it than this, don't we? We've already seen in chapters 1 and 2 that there is a driving force behind the universe. That there's a power at work in making everything happen exactly according to plan. Proverbs 6, 16, 13 says, The lot is cast into the lap. That's exactly the language that's used here for what Haman did. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Haman rolled the dice to, to secure a date for the annihilation of God's people, but it was Yahweh, the living God, who determined how it fell. The date right before Passover seems like such a coincidence. But it was a choice. It was fixed in time by the living God. There is not one thing in the universe that happens outside of God's control. We, we might feel that life is just happening by chance and things are out of control. Sometimes I feel that when, when it's a busy week and it just seems like things are on, unfurling. But, but we need to remember that everything is happening exactly the way God wants it to. This can be really hard to understand. It can be really hard to believe it and take it in. But as we continue through the book of Esther, this is one of the main messages, that God is in control. There's no such thing as chance. We roll the dice, but it's God who determines how they land. And this is such good news for us as Christians. Because if we are in Jesus, we know that not only is everything determined by God... But more than that, when we read in Romans 8, 28, it says that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That means all the coincidences in your life, all the seemingly random events that happen, God's working those all together for your good. If you love him, it's all for your good. And so even when it seems like you're having the worst luck, when you remember the question, when you're thinking, how on earth is this happening? Why is this happening? Can know and trust that our good, good Father is also the almighty living God who is in control over the entire spectrum of time and space. There is not one molecule, not one second is outside of his control. This is basic doctrine of God 101 that we need to, to know and believe and love about him. That he is in control of everything. And he's working it all out for the good of his people. And if you don't believe me, think about the cross of Jesus. If we look at the cross of Jesus, it seems, like, it seems like bad luck, doesn't it? It seems like Jesus' luck has run out. This is the darkest moment in history. And an extraordinary set of events has led to the promised Savior of the world hanging and dying on a cross. How did it get to this point? How could this ever happen? But we know. We knew that it wasn't chance. Over and over and over again, it was told in the, in the Gospels, the story of Jesus, that these things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. That everything has been determined by God. It was all designed by God to happen exactly the way it did. From the moment human, human beings rebelled against God, God said, I'm going to send a Savior who's going to crush evil. I'm going to bring you back to me. And from that moment, every event through history has been God working out his salvation plan. There's no mistakes in Jesus' work of salvation. No mistakes. And so when it seems like our luck has run out, when it seems like 
chances turned against us. We look at the cross of Jesus like we always do for everything, don't we? We, we look at the, the gospel, we look at the cross of Jesus, and we're just reminded that God works his good for his people. The fact that we're in this room today is proof of that. And then as we move towards the end of this chapter, we, 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 we come face to face with this fact that we have a real enemy. See, Haman is the kind of guy who can get people to do what he wants. It's so easy to think of like modern day, you know, equivalents in politics, but I'm not going to say those things publicly. Um, I'm not here to cast judgment. But Haman can manipulate people in power. He's probably quite suave and charming to people's faces. He's already, the king has got everyone to bow down to him already. Apparently, we see at the end of the chapter, they're out there like drinking buddies. And listen, listen what the king says to, he says to the king in verse 8. He says, um, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law so, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So he begins, in order to get his way to annihilate these people, he deceives the king. And he, he begins with a truth. He starts by saying, there are certain people scattered throughout the empire. And that's true. I'm pretty sure that the king had lots of different people groups scattered throughout the empire because this was an empire that conquered and expanded different nations. That's true. But then he moves on to a half-truth when he says, These, this people don't keep the king's laws. Well, yes, that's actually sometimes true. This Jewish people have their own customs and their own ways. You see, the people of God living in any empire at any time have a, double loyal, a dual loyalty, a double loyalty. They're loyal to the king, of course, but they also have a higher loyalty too. And any person who believes, belongs to the living God has a dual loyalty, including us. We have to respect and obey the authority of our leaders, the laws of our country, but we also are loyal and obedient to God. That's a higher loyalty, a higher obedience. We're commanded by God to honor the empire. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. In other words, obey the laws because God has put those laws in place. We have to respect the authorities and our government for the church, Christians, we should be good, law-abiding citizens who actually positively contribute to society. But we also have a higher loyalty too, don't we? Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with everything you are, every part of your being. He doesn't say, love the government with all of that. He says, respect them, obey them. And we need to be really clear that when we love Jesus with our entire being, when we love follow God with our entire being, and there will be times when the world will hate us for it. Loving God with our whole being will often put us at odds with the empire. <coughs> That's just a fact. And we all know this to be true, don't we? You've probably experienced it. I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to see how this plays out for, for for our time, 
You only have to have a conversation with somebody on one of these topics, right? Abortion, sexuality, or gender identity. You have a conversation with somebody who's not a Christian about any of those three topics, and you'll soon realize that following Jesus pits us against the world. And people are not happy about us doing the things we do and believing the things we believe and saying the things we say. The simple fact is that the world hates the church. I watched the video um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and it was telling the story of um, a man called, a minister called Bernard Randall. It's a very English name, and he is English. Uh, and in 2019, he, he was a he's a school chaplain in an independent school in England, and he was reported to the the government's terrorist watchdog, and he was forced out of his job because. In the school assembly, he gave a message about identity. And he only gave that message after one of the pupils, or some of the pupils, asked him to, to, to how to respond to conversations around identity. And here's a quote from the sermon. This is what he said. So he laid out a biblical kind of thing, and, and then this is what he said. He said, when ideologies compete, we should not descend to abuse. We should respect the beliefs of others, even when we disagree. And above all, we need to treat each other with respect, not personal attacks. This is what loving your neighbor means. And for that message, he was removed from his job and reported as a terrorist to the government. Haman says, they do not obey the king's laws. And sometimes for us, that is true. There are some things in law that we just simply cannot obey. And, and, and sometimes we're forced to decide, who are we going to honor? Are we going to honor the government? Are we actually going to honor God? And when we do this, the world hates us for it. Then Haman finishes his deception. He, just, he goes from a, a truth to a half-truth to just a straight-up lie, just a barefaced lie. He says, it's not good for you, king, to have these people around. You shouldn't tolerate them. Now we know this is a, this is a lie. He's persuaded the, the king that the Jews have no value to the king, even though it was a Jew that saved the king's life. It's a Jew who was a loyal servant. It's a Jew who sleeps in the same bed as him every night. And the king goes along with it. The Jews will be destroyed, even though we know that the queen, who the king delights in, is Jewish. And in this final scene of this chapter, we get this horrible, actually chilling picture of what hatred of God's people looks like when it's given the authority of the empire, right? It looks as if the people of God have no future. In verse 10, we see that the king gives his signet ring to Haman. It's a way of saying that Haman is given the king's authority to do whatever he wants to this people. This is what the king says to him. The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Just go and do what you have my blessing and my authority to go and do whatever you want. And what Haman plans and has given authority to do is no less, no less than state-sponsored genocide of an entire ethnic people. Christopher Ash again, he says this, he said, and this really shocked me when I read this, when you think about it this way, he said, it's a premeditated 
an authorized holocaust. Notice this horrible language in verse 13. It says, uh, instruction is given to destroy and to kill and to annihilate. You could not just one of those words. This is like, do away with them, destroy them completely. All the Jews, it says, young and old, women and children, none of them are to be left alive. And God's people before Jesus was limited to just the Jews, right? We knew that. But then through the work of Jesus on the cross, God's people has been opened up to everyone. And so when we believe in Jesus, we become God's people. And what we need to do as God's people living in the empire of this world around us is come face to, the, face to face with the fact that this hostility towards God's people has not gone away. Now, probably none of us in this room face the same level of violence as these Jews in the ancient Persian Empire. If you do, I mean, can we please help you? But what we see in Esther 3 is what happens when the hatred of the world is allowed to run free, when God allows that to just unfurl at a national level. This is what it would look like. Make no mistake that if, if we weren't protected by laws that God has given to us for our good, this is what would be happening to the church right now. And if you think that, that's, that I'm exaggerating or, or that's far-fetched, well then, just go and ask Christians in North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia or Libya or Pakistan. Those are the five countries in the world where it's hardest to be a Christian. And in these places, eight of our brothers and sisters are being killed. That just hit me. Every week. Every week. Because they love Jesus. So before we are together in this room again, this time next week, eight of our brothers and sisters will be dead because they love Jesus. Because love in Jesus makes them an enemy of the world. And we should be so thankful that in our country we have laws that allow religious freedom. And we can be here together. I can say these things publicly and know that we're not going to get shut down. We should be so thankful for that. And we have laws that prevent us being killed. But we need to realize that if you're a Christian, there are people in the world who want to kill you. Our enemy is real. The world hates the church. And we should thank God that it doesn't look for us like it did for the violence that other Christians are up against. But I guarantee you that when you take a stand for Jesus, when you openly follow him, you're going to face opposition. Uh, 1 John uh, chapter 3, John tells us, don't be surprised when the world hates you. And we know, like in our day-to-day experience, right, we know it's just getting harder and harder for, for people who believe in Jesus, isn't it? It's just getting harder. We feel that. We feel the pinch. We feel the pressure. I know people that have lost friends because they follow Jesus. I know people who are mocked and made fun of because they follow Jesus. I know people whose career has suffered because they follow Jesus. That's here in our country, in 2021. And listen, church, our enemy is real. The enemy is the enemy of Christ. Satan drives the empire of the world to demand respect and worship 
and to destroy anyone that refuses to give it to him. And so any attack or any persecution or hatred on God's people at any time throughout history is really an attack on the authority and power and character of God. And, you know, we, we said this last week, even though God is not mentioned in this book, neither is Satan mentioned in this book, what we see here is that there is a force at work in the power of the empire, through the power of the empire, to destroy God's people. Our enemy isn't an enemy of flesh and blood, but of powers and authorities. We're talking about a spiritual war. And when we refuse to bow to the power of the empire and instead only bow down to God, we will have that same force coming against us. Imagine we had to stop there. (laughs) But I want to finish with the hope. Because there is hope, even in these dark pages of the Bible, where it seems like it's over for God's people. The hope comes from the fact that this hatred against the Jews is actually hatred against our hidden ruler. The ruler who seems hidden in this story. The hatred is not for God's people, but the hatred is actually for, against God. Let me show you how this works, because the world says there is no God, but at the same time, it hates God. How can it hate so much with so much vitriol something or someone that doesn't exist? And the fact that we face persecution and hatred reveals the invisible power of God at work in the world. You see, the plan against the Jews in Esther was an active attempt by Satan to stop the salvation of the world. Because The plan was to wipe out all the Jews in the entire empire, including in Canaan and Jerusalem. And so if all the Jews are are, are wiped out, there's no family line for Jesus to come from. And so in a very real way, the hatred in Esther points forward 500 years to the power of another empire. The power and hatred of that empire focused on God's person. Not entire people group, but one man. Acts chapter 4, in this sermon that Peter gives, he actually says that the Herod and Pontius Pilate and the leaders actually conspired against Jesus to wipe him out. But what do we see in that? Do we see random events? No. We know that. We know God is in control. Was it the plan of Satan then? Yes. But also no. This was the perfectly laid out plan of God for his people. You see, it was through the greatest injustice and the most concerted evil against Jesus when he was kneeled to the cross that that God achieved his work of salvation. The world says, I'm going to throw all I have at you, Jesus. Satan says, I'm going to throw all I have at you, Jesus. And God said, that's right, you are. Because that's what it takes for us to be saved. And God did this through acts that seemed evil and from us looking from the outside seemed completely unfair. So just imagine what God can do with the injustice we face or the hatred we face. The fact that our salvation is based on an event that is completely unjust and completely fueled by human hate should give us hope when we face persecution in Jesus' name. Listen, church, we don't have to fear the empire. We don't have to bow down to the empire. 
we just continue to honor God and work for the good of the city we live in. Mordecai's good work of saving the king's life didn't bring him a reward. Instead, he ended up being hated by the empire. And you know what? It's going to be that way for us too. But we know that God is at work even when we can't see him. And, and Karen Jobes, a theologian who, who commented on this, this book of Esther, she says, this makes our greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. I love it when someone can just turn a good phrase, and she certainly did that. This makes our greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. We can't see the end of things from the middle, and so we simply have to just keep on walking by faith and not by sight. God uses even injustice and things that seem to to happen by chance and hatred to fulfill his promises to us, which is so, so good, isn't it? And we sometimes think, well, listen, is it really worth it? Is it worth me living a life of being on the outside, of, of being different, of facing injustice, of even being hated? Listen, to know Christ in his suffering is to become like him. And in becoming like him in his suffering, we will also live with him just as he lives. And we will never die. And so I'm finished, but my prayer, I guess, is that we would refuse to bow to the empire, that we would continue to work for the good of our city, that we would gladly suffer for his sake, and that, that, that Jesus would be our greatest joy and our true king because we know don't we that in the face of injustice and even hatred God is still working his good for his people let's pray Uh, father firstly I just want to pray for uh, our brothers and sisters across the world who are facing hatred and persecution at levels that we just can't fathom Lord I pray that you would just Sustain them, and would they just know your goodness? Would they just count it as joy to suffer for your sake? Uh, would you be near to them in, really, in, in real and tangible ways? And Lord, for us, in this family, in this place, in this city, I pray that, that we would um, just trust that you are working your purposes, your good purposes for us. Lord, we love you, and we know that nothing happens by chance, and we just want to keep doing good, suffering well for your sake, um, so that you would be glorified and that more people would know you. In Jesus' name, amen.